Welcome back to On the Mic with Mike Peters. My guest this week is New York City comedian Adam Mamawala. Adam moved to New Jersey from Illinois when he was a kid, but he's still a Chicago guy. We talked about the Cubs, how his divorce affected his stand-up career, and the joys of self-auditioning for acting roles and never hearing back from anybody. Adam has two podcasts, Away Games, a Chicago Cubs podcast, and Horse, a basketball podcast. He'll also be headlining at Zanies in Chicago on December 3rd and 4th. So if you're in town, grab tickets to see him because he might be recording his second album. You're going to love Adam Amawala. At the very least, it's a fun name to say. Adam Mamawala. Try it. Told you. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to the podcast. If you like what you hear, sign up for the Patreon. It's only $5 a month. Thanks again. I'll talk to you guys next week. Take care. Hey, thank you so much for doing this. Of course, yeah. Thanks for thanks for having me. You're leaving the country tomorrow or tonight? Yeah, I'm going to uh, my girlfriend's birthday is Saturday, so we're going to the DR for like six days to just not do anything. Man, what an awful life you lead. <laughs> well, I, I did inherit a vacation package in my divorce, so you know I gotta use it. Up. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I mean, awful, but that's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's ridiculous. Man, I, you probably don't know. So we met one time. You were in Binghamton for uh-huh. uh, the Comedy Crawl show, and I just yeah, I yeah, yeah. hand afterward. Okay, mm-hmm. That's it. But how long have you been doing stand-up? I mean, I always feel like I have two answers to that, but um, the, the first time I did stand-up was 15 years ago. Um, I was a freshman in college, so like my, my literal first time on stage was January of uh, 2006, in between the first two semesters I was in college. Um, I would say I've been doing it like for real, for real, for like a decade. Yeah, but I guess about that. I mean, the show I saw was just, the word I use is smooth. I mean, there was yeah. like no blips in it. I mean, it was just one topic to another. It seemed Thanks, like man. nothing could throw you. I mean, it was really impressive. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. I, you started in Chicago or about there? Actually, no. So I, I grew up in Illinois when I was like a little kid. Um, and I kind of claim Chicago as my home. Yeah. Partially because I'm a huge Chicago sports fan. So I think people have that association with me. But I never did stand up in, in Chicago. So we moved from Illinois to New Jersey when I was in fifth grade. So like the majority of my childhood was spent uh, in New Jersey. I went to middle school, high school, college in New Jersey. And then after that kind of migrated up to New York. So um, yeah, I, like, I started doing stand up in New Jersey. And how old are you now? I am 34. <laughs> so you were growing up around all those good Yankees teams and a Mets team one time. And you said, hey, committed to the Cubs. I'm going to be a yep. fucking Cubs. What's wrong with you? Um, you know, I, I, I don't know if it was being contrary or what it was. I mean, you, but the other side of that coin is that I also got to grow up in the Chicago suburbs during the nineties bulls. So like, Oh, that's true. That's I, true. I always kind of looked yeah. at, at the bulls as God's way of apologizing for the Cubs, but <laughs> it's like so much of my, uh, like it's so much what people know me for that when the Cubs won the world series, I got messages from people that I hadn't spoken to in two decades, like people that I went to middle school with who are like, you're the first person I thought of. Like, congratulations. Uh, I'm a huge Mets fan. So when the Mets oh, beat nice. the Cubs, they- So you, the you understand pain. Oh, without a doubt. No, and, and I think there's been articles linked to like comedians and Mets fans because kind of being the contrarian. Yeah. And it's like, oh, well, we don't want to tag on with the Yankees, a winner. We like the underdog feel. So I think right. that's part of it. But like when the Mets swept the Cubs in the 
uh, NLCS in 2015. Yeah. Or yeah, I think it was that. Yeah, it was 15. Yep. And well, no, I think because they beat the da- Daniel oh, Murphy beat them single handed. It, it was well, he beat the Dodgers too. That's why I'm confused. Yeah. I'm like, oh, which was first? But yeah, I mean, they were just embarrassed. And like, I was rooting for the Cubs until then. And then the next, it's crazy how that team was mm-hmm. just supposed to be this dynasty. And then the next year they go up against the Indians. And I'm like, I don't know who to root for because I want to root for the Cubs. Right. But they're so loaded that you almost, as an outsider, you didn't want the Cubs to win because they were so good that they should have won three or four. Yeah, it's 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 a very disappointing. Uh, we can just turn this whole thing into a baseball podcast. Why not? I don't care. But um, it's very disappointing. And I, I think it's probably I mean, this is a bit before your time, but it's not dissimilar from the 86 Mets where it's oh, like yeah. that is a team that should have won a lot more. Um, and it's just like a, a real mismanagement from the upper levels of the organization for it, the the Cubs owners are like Trump loving billionaires who are very concerned with the bottom line and cry poor constantly. Yeah. And they had so many opportunities to build onto an already really good team. Like they could have had Bryce Harper and they just sat that offseason out and and stood pat. And then now we've seen the results of it. Like it was genuinely surreal for me to watch Kyle Schwarber versus Anthony Rizzo in a Red Sox Yankees playoff game. That's tough. And they were the standouts, you know, at times. Yeah. 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 No, I love Schwarber. Uh, you know, I played fantasy baseball, still do. Mm-hmm. And I, Drafted Bryant, I think, like first, uh, at least this the year? first round. No, no, no. This would have been like maybe his rookie year or the year after that. I had him yeah. from the beginning, so it probably was his rookie year. And I'm in a keeper league, so like I had like one pick in the first four rounds. Yeah, yeah. So I used it on Bryant, and he was great. He was rookie of the year, MVP. Bias came up. I remember grabbing him mm-hmm. early, and he kind of sucked. And then I yeah. dropped him, and he developed into a beast. And Schwarber. Did you like having him on the Mets? I did, except for like the one time where like, like, what, you know, thumbs he, down. Yeah, basically that. But like after that, I mean, he was great. He was so much fun to watch. And I don't know if you watch a lot of Mets games on TV, but their booth mm-hmm. is amazing. And it really, uh, yeah, I think, I think they have one of the best play-by-play teams in, in all of baseball. They, they are as good as the Yankees people are bad. Oh yeah. And I don't think there's, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of bad crews. And I mm-hmm. lived in Baltimore for a little while. So I got mm-hmm. to see the Orioles who were great. And then the Nationals team, which was terrible, like their broadcast yeah. group was awful. And yeah, yeah. so I, I moved back up to New York and I, I now get to watch 162 times Gary Cohen, Keith Hernandez and Ron Darling, which is a treat. Yeah. And I, every time Baez would slide and, you know, mm-hmm. take one hand away and reach with the bag with the other hand, they were just floored. And it was really fun watching them be impressed by this guy every mm-hmm. single day. Yeah, people who are like baseball lifers who have yeah. seen everything who are still blown away. I also, I think Gary Cohen's home run call is up there with like the best home run calls in baseball. The, that is out of here. Like it, it's very satisfying to listen to. I think he and Howie Rose have both been talked about for the Hall of Fame. And I still think they're both completely underrated to Absolutely. anybody outside of New York. And, you know, I mean, I don't know if you're a Knicks fan, but like the fact yeah. that Knicks fans get to listen to Mike Breen most yep. of the season, they, I hope people, they like realize how lucky they are. Well, Knicks had Marv Albert for a long time, too. Yeah. Uh, and so my my best I'm a Timberwolves fan. I mean, I'm oh, like, interesting. I'm here and there anymore. But like yeah. I grew up with Garnett and Marbury and Gugliata, and mm-hmm. I just absolutely love those teams. And my best friend was a huge Knicks fan. And he went like. Something like 400 straight games he saw on TV. And like, wow, it was something crazy. I mean, yeah, which is what, six seasons about that or five seasons. And uh, he just, I don't know, for some reason, he just, he drifted away a little bit. 
But, you know, I grew up in the 90s, too. And those 90s Knicks teams, mm-hmm. they're no Bulls. But they were awesome. Oh, they were tough teams. They were tough teams. They're fun. I mean, are you able to, not to go back into comedy, but, like, are you able to take any of that sports stuff onto the stage? Because I've always found that relating sports to audiences through comedy is really tough. It's very tough. Not not very much at all. Um, yeah. Almost, almost, yeah, I think there's, like, almost no sports stuff in my act, which is weird because it is like a, a huge part of my life. I remember one of my earliest jokes was something to the effect of uh, like that old thing about, you know, if you're trying to last longer in bed, people tell right. you to think about baseball. And I was like, for me, that has the opposite reaction because I love baseball and that actually <laughs> makes me come faster. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, if only my grandpa were alive to hear that, he would have loved that joke. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, that's, that's kind of true though. Like I would, yeah. you know, all, oh, all I have to do is think about David Wright. No, that's not going to mm. work. Gets you know, your rock hard. He's prime, you know? Like it's I mean, <laughs> you can't think about Chris Bryant. No. You don't expect no. to last long. Not with those beautiful eyes. Are you kidding me? He is gorgeous. I mean, that's that's He's hard. A beautiful man. You know, it's hard to do. I don't know. Whenever I see a comedian do it, I'm so jealous. I'm like, I don't know how. Like it's and for me, yeah. like the only way I'm able to do sports on stage is when I talk about like my little league days. And then mm-hmm. like I'm very self-deprecating. So like I can say, Oh yeah, well, I peaked at 12. And right. now I live in my apartment complex overlooks my little league field. So every day I can drive past where my life started to go downhill. You know, it's <laughs> like, like, Oh yeah. Yeah. But it has to be something that's like vague. You're not like, yeah. if you make a joke about the 2018 Mets, people are not going to probably respond that well to it. And I think that's, that's what gets tough about it. Like I, I think if anything, the angle that I've tried to do is more like, let me try to, talk about baseball in a funny way in a different medium. Like that's, I have a, like a Cubs podcast and a baseball podcast. And that's, that's our whole angle is it's me and another comic. And we're like doing, we really know the team very well, but we're also doing it in a funny way. I feel like that's easier than trying to incorporate like very niche uh, sports knowledge into a standup act. Do you think that podcasts, the sports podcasts are a good outlet for all the material you're collecting, but can't, Kind stage. of. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Actually, I think I think that's exactly what it is, um, because we are we do have a lot of things that are like incredibly specific, but funny within the context of like, if you are a Cubs fan and you really understand the organization, this is going to be funny to you. But there is no world in which even in Chicago, you could do that on stage and everybody would know what you were talking about. Like, right. I, I can't just go on stage at Stand Up New York and talk about Jed Hoyer being a shitty GM and have <laughs> anyone know what I'm talking about. I don't know if you could do that with like Fred Wilpon or any like no name. Yeah, maybe maybe not. Steve Cohen right now because he's a billionaire and, and all the eyes are on billionaires. But maybe yeah, I don't know. Mark Cuban might be the one guy who everybody would know, but you know, yeah. he's obviously not just. But they know him from Shark Tank, yeah. not from right, exactly. being a Mavericks guy. Yeah, I did get to meet Noah Syndergaard at a Comedy Central party. One really? Time. Mm-hmm. He's a very I striking can- man. You uh you waited eleven minutes to talk to me about this. This is rude. it was actually <laughs> it was right after the Mets beat the shit out of the Cubs in twenty fifteen. It was like November of that year. And I mean, if you know anything about baseball, like you first of all, even if you don't know baseball, he's not gonna blend into a crowd. He's like no. a six six gorgeous man. Yeah. And so uh I believe I just walked up to him and I was like, Hey, uh, you know. I'm a Cubs fan and I'm kind of upset with you, but I also really enjoy watching you pitch. So, you know, congrats. <laughs> he seems like he's got a great sense of humor. He seemed nice. Yeah. I mean, it was like a two second exchange. Yeah. But. I just read an article where he's 
you know, he wants actually the, the Mets to give him an option and like, he wants to stay in the city and I yeah. can't see him. Like he's one of those guys where I can't picture him in another uniform. Like, well, I think I don't think he's going to. You might you might have to because that was how I felt about all of the Cubs players we got traded this year. <laughs> yeah, that's I haven't yeah. lived. I don't think I've seen the Mets do that like like a complete sale. Yeah, in midseason yeah. that's that's hard. Like I always think yeah, about like, the Marlins teams, but at least they got mm-hmm. you know World Series rings before that happened. The Marlins are the most annoying franchise in yeah. baseball. Never won a division title, and they have two yeah. World Series. I hate them. I don't get it, and they. I think was it they came in 93 and they won in 97. So mm-hmm. before that the Mets and beat an Indians team that was like a generationally good team. Yeah, and like, you know, was it its second World Series in 3 years? Yeah. And I mean, how many Hall of Famers were on that team? And then Oh, it's crazy. What those Marlins did was they they beat the 69 Mets record for going from, you know, expansion team to World Series champion. I mean, it was 7 years for yeah. them. Yeah. And four I mean, and I think the, I think the Diamondbacks beat them. Or at least, because yeah. yeah, they, they want to know one, and yeah, it came up in '98. So that one stat, never won a division title, and won two World Series has is the worst. Ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, and they're whatever, and they're. I think they've got like all star pitchers all over the place, but mm-hmm. they just keep trading the young talent, and you know, to the Brewers. Hey, we got an MVP. Let's give him to the Brewers. Let's see what he does there. Yeah, you know, Thank and they're all and they're feeding every team in the NL Central, so that can't be good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I already hated the Marlins. I already have yeah. trauma built up from 2003 uh, in that. Oh my LCS. god, I forgot about that. And, uh, and then a couple of years ago, uh, and I think Jose Fernandez dying certainly had something to do with this. Yeah. Like in one off season, they're like, "Well, uh, Cubs fans, you might enjoy us now because we are going to give Yelich to the Brewers for nothing and give Osuna, uh, who is an asshole by the way, to the uh, to the Cardinals for nothing." Do you know? Uh, oh, is this personal? Do you know more information than I know, or? Oh yeah, he's a something. domestic okay. abuser. He missed the whole oh, yeah, season okay. because right, he like, right. Right. yeah. No, I, I didn't know if like he he slighted you at a Comedy Central party. No, no, I don't. I have not had any All encounter right. with him. But uh, yeah, I have a uh, one. I was a sports reporter for a while, and I was in Baltimore and then like Lockheed in Pennsylvania and Binghamton a little bit. But I covered a few Orioles games, and one of them was I think it was oh six or oh seven. It might have been oh eight. I was in. Uh, it was the Yankees were in town, and I had to, I did like some freelance work for a paper up in New York. It was like New York Metro or something like that. And mm-hmm. I had to interview Jeter, Jabba Chamberlain, and a bunch of the Yankees. Jabba Chamberlain, one of the biggest assholes I've ever met. Oh, I've heard, I heard he was terrible. Was, yeah, no, no redeeming quality. It was his rookie season. He had all the attention on him, and he was just a pain in the ass. Jeter, uh, he blew me off, So, which I didn't completely, it didn't surprise me. But like I'm like, hey, uh, can I get a couple minutes with you? And he goes, yeah, yeah. Uh, and he started to take a question. He goes, oh, uh, I'm gonna go. Uh, I gotta go take batting practice, but I'll be right back. And then he came in and he goes, no, no, I don't have time. I'm like, of course, of course, you know. And yeah. uh, so it was, it, yeah. What season was it? A Rod had a monster year. It was like uh, yeah. he had like 50 home runs and 150 RBIs, something like that. Mm-hmm. And I remember a reporter. It was one of the last games A Rod had scored on a, a double or something like that. And he didn't pick up the bat. So somebody else could come in and one reporter started with that question to try to get drama. And here I was like, no, nah, I'm done. And I was like, Oh, so I thought he yeah. could have been okay, but can't tell. Yeah. So I don't, I don't have a whole lot of uh, best, best one. Mariana Rivera. Great. Jorge Posada. Awesome. But hmm. yeah, Johnny Damon, 
he wore his sunglasses all the time. So that's the only dirt I have on Johnny Damon. It was weird. He was just this like. I don't love the fact that Mariano Rivera, a Panamanian immigrant, is a huge Trump guy. Yeah, I don't get that. I don't get that. It's very strange. It has to be just the money, right? I guess. Yeah. I mean, I know rich people tend to be Republicans if they want to protect their money. So I guess. But yeah, it's like he's like been to the White House. It's very strange. Yeah. I, I mean, even Tom Brady didn't go the last time. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't make any sense to me. Yeah. So uh, what got you started in, in a comedy? Like, I mean, was the stuff you saw on TV? I mean, who inspired you? I would say like growing up, I was always somebody who gravitated towards comedy, but not towards stand up. Like I just because of who my parents are and the kind of like senses of humor they have, I was introduced to a lot of things at a young age that I don't think a lot of kids are exposed to like weird stuff. Like my mom was very into British comedy. So we would watch like Monty Python's flying circus and faulty towers and stuff like that. And, um, my dad grew up in India and like uh, a lot of the things that he was into were things that were like really old shit from the U S where it's like, you know, like silent movies or like Laurel and Hardy and Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin. And, um, like, you know, I watched a lot of like, I love Lucy growing up. And then I think as I got older, like, I remember us like watching Seinfeld as a family and I didn't even like understand half the jokes, but I'm just like laughing along with my parents yeah. or the laugh track. And I think probably the things that had the most impact on like my comedic sensibility are like watching the office, like the TV show, the office and Chappelle show, which both like kind of got popular when I was in high school. And then it was really towards like the end of high school and into college that I started having an interest in standup. And then it kind of just like evolved from there. But I, I was not anybody who ever thought I would do standup. It didn't even occur to me that that was like a thing someone could do. And I also wasn't like a comedy nerd in the way that like sometimes you hear comics interviewed and they're like, oh, I was like, you know, staying up to watch Letterman every night because I wanted to see whatever comedian was on. Like uh, that was not me. I, I, I think my first exposure to it was like, watching premium blend on comedy central and like some of the the half hours like comedy central presents. Um, and then like a lot of people that age, like finding out about Dane cook and then having yeah, a friend yeah. introduce me to Mitch Hedberg and be like, Oh, this is a completely different way to do stand up That doesn't involve like, you know, doing backflips on the stage. And I'm not even like <laughs> shitting on Dane cook. Like I, I will defend harmful if swallowed as a hilarious album till the day I die. I think it's great. Even if he is kind of like a, a shitty Leonardo DiCaprio and that he exclusively dates 19 year olds and is kind of gross. But, uh, yeah. but the energy he had on stage. Was Unbelievable. Something he was a rock I star. He was, he was like the yeah. Beatles. It's yeah. crazy. And he did something. What, what He was like all MySpace, I think. Like he. Yeah. If there's anything he deserves a lot of credit for beyond his act, it's like figuring out how to utilize social media before anyone was doing that. Yeah. He built a huge following through MySpace. And and in the way that now people have like newsletters or, or develop a, a following online, that's like, if there's any regret that I have in my career, it's like not having been as proactive as I could have been about that when I had the opportunity to like earlier on in my career. Yeah, I'm still, I'm okay with social media, but I, I'm not great at like, like with the podcast, I can promote. Mm-hmm. But when I'm, I book a lot of shows and even on the shows I book, I never say, almost never say, I'm performing on this because. Meaning like you produce a lot of shows? Oh yeah, I produce a lot of shows. Like I, I run like 12 rooms right now in yeah, yeah, yeah. Over New York. So like, but I'm like almost never will say, hey, I'm here tonight. It's always right, like, right, oh, right. Adam is here and Bill is here. It's like, mm-hmm. I'm like, my mindset is they don't care about me. Whereas that shouldn't be the case. It's like, you know, there's confidence no. come through. So 
that's that's one of my failings. Also, I'm 38, so mm-hmm. I am perpetually a little bit late to whatever the trend is. You know, like I've signed up. For I get a that a account, bit. But yeah, I've never done TikTok. Yeah, and I'm younger than you, so I, I mean, <laughs> I, I think there's probably something to be said for like it's never too late to do, to do something, and and especially like if all you're doing on TikTok is just like re-uploading clips that you've already put on Instagram or something, like it doesn't take that much effort. It's just something that I've like not made a priority and, and perhaps I'm being stubborn, but I just don't really feel like doing the whole like front facing video. Like I'm going to like tell a joke into my phone rather than just share a clip of it on stage. I I don't know. It's probably a bad, a bad call, but I don't know. I mean, I, I always think as long as you get in the stage time anyway, what's it really matter? Yeah. Like you're getting that unless TikTok is going to, unless at some point, comedy clubs will say, okay, well, how many TikTok followers do you have? And judge <laughs> your booking on that. Because they, they do it somewhat for Twitter and Instagram. Yeah, so it's yeah like, it definitely makes a difference. Yeah. But I don't know. I, I think there should, <laughs> in a perfect world, the emphasis would be on the jokes and their ability to work. That's never going to happen. You know that. Yeah, and it, it probably never was. I mean, as for, for as long as comedy has been around, like it's ultimately a food and beverage industry where yep. like if you can put asses in seats, that's what matters. Yeah. I'm starting a new room in Binghamton. And one of the concerns that the owner had was the last people who had the room, not enough people bought drinks. And I was mm. like, which I understand, but it's like, well, was the show good? He didn't care. I mean, yeah. it didn't matter to him. He didn't go upstairs and right. watch. You know, he just mm-hmm. looked at... Yeah, he just looked at the numbers at the end of the night. Absolutely. And he's like, well, I, this didn't work for me. It's like, you said they had two sold-out shows. How didn't that work? Like, those right. hundred people weren't coming to the bar anyway. So it's like, but mm-hmm. that doesn't matter. He wants... Every, and I understand that's a, that's a good way to run a business. But yeah. as a comedy producer, you're like, shit, does that matter? I don't know. Like, <laughs> yeah. everybody was funny and people walked away happy. Like, that should right. be the goals. But... Whatever. Well, yeah. So you started in New York and you've been, mm-hmm. would you say you've been like, you didn't take any breaks, right? Really? Except for the pandemic. Basically. Well, I started, I started in New Jersey. So I, yeah. I like, I did comedy for the first time at an open mic at the stress factory yeah. in New Brunswick. Um, and that was during my first year of college. And then I started doing stand up a lot more when I was in school. So, you know, at like, a coffee house sort of situation yeah, yeah. or like anytime there's like a variety show at my college, that sort of thing. And then kind of, uh, in, in the summers doing stuff around New Jersey, which was like a decent scene. And there were other like really good comics around at that time. Like that's when I got to know like Dina Hashem and Gordon Baker bone, uh, Justin Flanagan, like they were all kind of part of that scene. And the Lucas brothers actually as well were, were part of that world. I went to college with them. Oh, nice. And yeah, I, I used to like play pickup basketball with them. And so, yeah, I guess I, I got into it. In New Jersey, and then I had kind of a roundabout way of getting into, I guess, like the business of comedy in the sense that, like, I got into doing colleges when I was very young at a time where I hadn't even been to New York yet. So, like, I I worked my way into that world when I was, like, barely out of college myself and still living with my parents. And then by the time I moved to New York, I was already, like, making money on the road but I also hadn't really cut my teeth here. So it was kind of this weird thing where like I show up, people don't know who I am. I'm like making a living doing comedy, but I also wasn't great at it. Like I was fine. And I was like operating largely on charisma at the time that I was doing college gigs. And then uh, it was like a very humbling experience to come here and be like, Oh, none of that really matters to anyone here. Uh, If anything, they like judge you for it and think that you're a hack yeah. And so either like get better or, you know, decide to be like the college guy and move back to the suburbs and make your 80 grand a year and leave everybody else alone. 
That's not a bad. And that's not a bad life. I mean, it's not a bad life. You offer me 80 grand and live, live where I am now. I'm like, All right, I'll take it. Like, it's oh, fine. You, I, yeah. 80 grand is different uh, if you're not in New York City. But That's very true. That's very true. Was it tough for you to, I mean, when did you feel like you were part of the crew? Like, you know. How, like in New York? Yeah. I mean, like, was it a tough transition? Yes. Okay. Um, it took years. It took, it, it literally took years. I, I think, and, and the other thing about it that was a little frustrating was that, um, and I don't know if it's like jealousy or judgment or whatever it is. But people like felt a type of way about someone who did a lot of college gigs uh, as if that was like not a legitimate way to do comedy. Um, and I, I understand that judgment to some degree. I, I don't I mean, admittedly, college audiences are not particularly uh, discerning comedy crowds. Mm-hmm. The, the people who do best in that environment are people who are like not edgy comics at all, not taking a lot of risks, um, not doing anything that could potentially like get whoever booked you at that school in trouble. So I, I do understand that component of it, but it took a long time for me to get like that stink off of me where even, even now to some degree, and this is not as prevalent, but like there are still people who are like, Oh, you you're still doing a bunch of colleges. And I'm like, I don't know. I've done like one in the past two years. Like it's not, it's not really what I do anymore. Um, but anyway, long way of saying that it took, I think people like had a certain attitude towards me because did, people didn't know who I was. And like when you're in New York, a lot of the people that you hang out with are people that you kind of like came up in the trenches with, which I kind of hate that term because yeah, like doing open right, mics right. is not the same as being in a war. But mm-hmm. um, I don't know about that. I guess it is similar. <laughs> uh, it's, it's very. There's a lot of PTSD either way. Yeah, but very much, very much. I didn't. I didn't have that crew because I had not taken that route. So all of a sudden, I I kind of like walked into this middle tier of comedy in New York. But I didn't have my people here. I didn't have friends. I didn't have like a, a crew of, of other comics. And so I think I had to just kind of like earn people's respect. And it, it, it took years. I think it was like it was probably not until I had been here like actively being part of the scene and like going out and hanging out at shows and, and doing spots that maybe two or three years into that, I felt like I had developed a reputation where people like respected what I did and thought that I was a good comic and a good guy. Um, and even now, like I think that I would like to think that if you asked most comics, if they knew who I was in New York, that most people would have at least like heard of me. Right. Um, but I also recognize that I'm not at the level of like a Mark Norman or Sam Morell or, or people who are like at that highest echelon of New York comics. I wonder if that's just, is that just about being seen though? Or uh, I mean, what do you obviously, mean? obviously, like at clubs, like, I mean, just, mm-hmm. just being visible to the other comedians or is that just more about, oh, well, they've got a special out. So everybody knows that they're a household name. I don't know. I mean, I guess it's a combination of a lot of things. And I think it's also a matter of what you want. Like I'm somebody who I have made the conscious decision to not only focus on comedy. And it's it it's unknown to me whether or not that has been a good idea. But like I have kind of tried to do a lot of different things. And so... What that means for me is that in the way that maybe five or 10 years ago, my entire mindset was all like stand up focused. That's not where I'm at anymore. And and the pandemic also had something to do with that, because I think one of the things that I realized in the past year and a half was that, like, I still know how to be really good at this, even if I'm not doing it two times a night every night. Yeah. Like, it's just, it's just not necessary at a certain point. And that doesn't mean that you become complacent and you do comedy once every two months. But 
I mean, I spent the last year doing basically Zoom shows and like shows in Central Park in broad daylight. And I still knew what I was doing. And I, I didn't I feel like there's so much of that in New York where it's like you feel this compulsion to do a million spots all the time or do a bunch of mics out of this weird sense of obligation that doesn't necessarily it's not necessarily rooted in any sort of reality. Like I have seen people succeed that route where they just like devote their entire life to comedy and they just like bust their ass until they get some sort of break. But I also have seen way more people get burnt out and like not even enjoy comedy anymore. So I I, I try and I think especially now I'm trying to like be more balanced that way where I'm like, I'm not trying to live that life anymore of like being completely out of whack and my entire life revolves around stand up. Do you ever listen to Tuesdays with Stories? I've heard it. I don't. I don't okay. listen to it regularly. Okay. Well, it's Mark Norman, Joe List, and I, I think yeah. what you described is like those two guys. Like mm-hmm. it's Norman. You could argue they're hustlers, man. Well, Norman, you could argue has a sickness where he can't. Yeah. It's he can't it's, not it's, work. it's compulsive behavior. Yeah, and then Joe List is seeming like it seems like he's like you know what I got a pretty good life here. You know mm-hmm. I don't need to rush out. I like to watch the Red Sox. And the Patriots, right. I can take right. the night off. I don't care. Yep. Those guys are like, okay, well, who, which one do you want to be? And I would say Mark Norman is probably more of a household name, but yeah. Joe List does well. I mean, I'm, I think I'm at the point where, here's the thing. I, I think one of the challenges for me is and has always been that I'm not, I'm not a stereotypical comic in that, like, I don't love being on the road all the time. I don't love like, you know, sleeping around and like never being in a relationship. Like I, for someone who has chosen a very unstable profession, I really crave stability and (laughs) stand up is not something that offers that. And I've kind of, you know, I'm I'm sitting here talking to you after a, 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 you know, a marriage that that didn't work a few years ago. And that wasn't like just because of comedy, but it didn't help. And I think I'm, I'm kind of at the point where like, I am willing to sacrifice whatever like advancement in my career it might cost to like not be so focused on my career that I don't enjoy the rest of my life. Like I, I, if, if you told me that if I gave up everything else in my life and I devoted myself to stand up and only stand up. And if I did that, you know, in two years I would have a Netflix special and then I would start touring theaters. It would be tempting. But if that was at the expense of me, like not being able to maintain a personal relationship or like not seeing my family or my friends or having any sort of balance in my life, I don't think that I would do it. What about like 18 months ago, like pre pandemic? Mm-hmm. Do you think you'd have the same mindset? No. Okay. Um, I think it was it, all of it is very kind of strangely timed because I like I got separated from my ex in September of 19. Okay. And at that point, that followed a period of time where like I was attempting to, I don't know, reconcile my marriage and like hadn't been doing that much standup. And then once that unraveled, I was like only doing standup very much in the sort of way that you can like pour yourself into something so that you avoid dealing with shit that you need to deal with. Not to mention that like I had a lot to say at that time because I was talking about my divorce on stage and I felt like very like motivated to share stuff about my life. And I was like, you know, head down, like I'm going to bust my ass and treat treat this like I'm a 20 year old comic again. And I was seeing results of that. Like I, I, I had a very busy stretch there in those six months from like, you know, September of that year into March of, of last year when everything yeah. stopped. But having that weird break kind of imposed on all of us that none of us had had sought, I think made me realize some things uh, partially that like I, I enjoy 
some of the like having a more quiet life and not feeling like I'm like running around like a chicken with my head cut off all the time because it is draining. And I feel like I, it has like had, it's taken its toll on me, especially when, when I guess everybody feels like this, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure Mark Norman has things that he's like, well, yeah, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. But like, why don't I have a sitcom or why don't I have yeah. this? Like there's always, if you're ambitious, there's always going to be like something you're chasing. But I, I think the, the amount of failure that we all have to, encounter on a, on a consistent basis, like it does have an effect on your mental state. And especially as someone who has kind of like expanded what I'm doing into like doing a lot of acting stuff and, and, and having my hands in a lot of different places in the short term, it just means that I'm like multiplying my failure exponentially. And that is something that has like really uh, gotten to me where I'm trying to figure out the balance there where, you know, so much of my past year was like, submitting self-tape auditions where I'm standing in front of the wall behind me here, like reading with someone on Zoom, and then I just send off this audition into the ether and never hear about it again. And like, that shit gets to you. Like, it's it, it would be almost impossible for it not to, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, that's, but that's basically what acting is. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's living in, I, I assume, from what I've heard and read, it's living in, yeah. <clears throat> it's living in failure. So, mm-hmm. I mean, but then again, you go to an open mic and you try to joke, you have no idea how it's going to land. So I, at that point, I would that's think... That's true, but at least you're getting feedback immediately. That's true. Like, that's one of the true. things yeah, that's, that's satisfying about stand-up is that, like, at any given moment, you know where you stand when you're on stage. And sometimes the, it might be a shitty crowd, and it's not your fault, but nevertheless, you get that immediate feedback, and that's one of the things that's most satisfying. And, I, and I've said this before, like, one of the toughest things as someone who came up in stand-up when you start acting is that you don't get that. And... At least in the in the before times, you would be like in the room with the casting director and you could at least like make them laugh or be charming or like see how what you were doing was impacting them. Now you don't even get that because everything's remote. So you're just like sending something out and you don't even know if anybody's ever watched it. And that's for somebody who who enjoys the instant gratification that stand up brought. It's it's really frustrating to like put all of this effort into something and like never hear anything about it again. Now, how do you enjoy acting? I mean, does it compare to stand up for you? I, I don't think that I, I care about it as deeply as I care about stand-up. Like, um, I, I think it's something that I'm good at and something that that is definitely, like, a route for me. But it's, I don't, in the way that, like, if I'm on stage and I'm killing and, like, everything is going right, like, the rush I get from that, I've never quite experienced that from acting in something. And and unfortunately, like, a lot of my life has been auditioning more than actually acting in things. Right. And that's the other thing. Like I got to um, film something over the summer that I was lead in and, and like actually got to act. And that was incredibly fun and incredibly satisfying. And I would love to do more of that. But the, the process of like getting to the point where you're actually in something like that sucks. No, it, it doesn't surprise me that, that you kind of took to acting. Like a lot of my favorite mm-hmm. actors are comedians and it seems like yeah. there's a natural correlation to because you know obviously we try to be ourselves on stage but there's an element of a character we're playing and then to go into another role seems like it's a natural progression yes and no i mean i think basically the the mindset is that like people like working with comedians because there's something to be said for the natural comedic instincts that you develop as a stand-up that you cannot teach like an, uh, an actor who doesn't have that background. So I think the, the ideology is like, okay, yes, this person's not uh, a trained actor per se, but we know they're really funny. And if we can get them to <laughs> use that 
we would rather train this comic how to act than try to train an actor how to be naturally funny. Yeah. And and my, you know, my thing was that by virtue of being a comic and by being in New York, I would at various times have certain opportunities to audition for things, not because of any acting experience, but just because I was a comic and someone thought I was like the right look for something or whatever. And I would go to these auditions and I would basically just being, tr- I would be like trying to, you know, stand up if I an acting script and I would not do well at all. And at a certain point I was like, you know what? Like, I feel like I'm getting opportunities. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Why don't I just devote myself to this in the same way that I have to stand up and like start taking a bunch of acting classes and actually like learn the craft of it and learn how to do it. And so I did that, but I would say to this point, I've had like limited results in terms of, you know, payoff for that. And that, and I think that makes me question like, all right, so was this something that like was a good a good thing for me to try, but maybe it's time for me to go back into uh, stand up a little bit more or, or that sort of thing. But yeah, I mean, I think I just got to a point where I was like, I'm not going to be Mark Norman in the sense right. that like, I don't think that my route to being where he's at is going to be by just doing stand up. I think it's going to be, and I still think this, like if, if I am ever to like break in some sort of way, I don't necessarily know that it's going to be because I just grinded out stand-up sets for years. I think it's it's going to potentially be like from some show that I was on or from whatever else, um, which I'm fine with. You mentioned a couple times, and I'm, I'm curious, uh, you went through the divorce. Mm-hmm. How quickly into the divorce proceedings or the separation did you take that material on the stage, or did you develop the material and take it to a stage? I feel like I was kind of like developing it as it was happening but I wasn't doing it at that time. It was this very weird thing where I still had certain obligations. And there were, while I was not doing a lot of stand up um, during that time, the shows that I did have to do, or especially the ones that I was like making money from, I was not ready to talk about what was actually happening yet. Yeah. So instead, I was doing a bunch of jokes about like being married. But that was really weird too, because all of these jokes about like, being happy and this and that, like they weren't true anymore. Um, but once we uh, were separated, then I had, you know, I kind of took all of that stuff that I've been writing down because I'm sure you're like this too. Like as a comic, your brain just goes to that place where even in like the worst possible moment, you could be like at a funeral. Like if something happens, you're still going to like track it and be like, fuck, that's funny. Yeah. Um, and there were moments throughout that entire experience, even as like things were really bleak where this would happen or that would happen. And I, and I would just like kind of clock it and be like, man, that is like a lot of it was this kind of like very like darkly funny. Like I cannot believe this is my life right now. And then once, once I started talking about it on stage, it just like poured out of me to the point where I feel like I had all of a sudden like 15 or 20 minutes about it within, I don't know, a couple weeks. Like it was the fastest I had ever generated material was at that time. And I wasn't like trying to use the stage as therapy because I was also going to therapy. And I also like, I think that there's too much of that sometimes where people are like, just being honest isn't enough. Like you also have to be funny. Uh, I think people forget that sometimes. And certainly like early on when I was doing that stuff, there were times where it was that feeling where like, I think the audience just felt bad for me more than they felt that, that what I was saying was funny. Um, probably because I was just like very raw emotionally, but as I got more distance from it and and started to like feel better personally, I think the material really got to a point where I was like, you know, I kind of struck that balance where it was sad and it was like dark, but mostly it was just funny. And, and 
I'm genuinely like more proud of that chunk of material than anything else I've ever done as a stand-up. Well, I have a theory where, you know, just for me, like I have a dark sense of humor, a dark personality in, in that way. And there are times where things will happen in my life that go negatively. Mm-hmm. And I'm almost thankful they do because it's like, oh, I can write about that. So it's, right. like, it's like, strangely, I root for bad things to happen. Yeah, I, I think that like, might be a little, I, I don't know if that's a good thing. <laughs> no, probably not. But it's like, it's like yes. I don't know. Like there's some sick little thing inside of me that says, yeah, let's peel at that. And uh, maybe it gets worse right. and I can get two more minutes. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, look, it's one of those things where would I trade having had a successful marriage for not having that material? Oh, 100%. Right. You know, like, and I, and I, I never wanted to ascribe to that notion that you have to be sad or, you know, in pain to generate good material, because I think I was a really good comic, even when I was happy, you know what I mean? Like, and, and I, I think I'm still a good comic now and, and I am currently happy and in a relationship <laughs> that I, that I think is really like healthy and good. Um, so yeah, it's, it's interesting, but it, it was like a little frustrating to me because that was something that people had always kind of said to me was like, I don't know, I feel like you're like too well adjusted to be a comedian. And, and maybe they're right. I mean, like, I'm not the stereotypical background of a comedian. Like I come from a very loving family with very supportive parents. And like, I had a nice childhood and I, you know, I don't come from money, but like right. we were always reasonably comfortable. And, and I don't have that backstory of like, you know, my dad left when I was one year old and I never saw him again. And, you know, my, you know, all that kind of stereotypical stuff that a lot of comics have gone through that is the reason that they became a comic. I never had that. But again, I I think it's, it's all, it's a matter of, I think, being true to who you are. And if who you are is someone who's really dark and comes from some fucked up shit, then you should probably be honest about that. And if you're in the same way that like, Kanye never talked about dealing drugs because he didn't deal drugs. Like yeah. he was talking about what his life was. And I and I think not to weirdly name drop here, but there was a time where I was like pretty close with Tim Dillon when he was just starting out. And I remember him kind of like criticizing me for that because even from the beginning, he had a very distinct voice and like knew exactly what he wanted to say and felt that my stuff was like fluff essentially. Um, and I don't know that he was completely wrong at that time. But I do remember saying to him, I was like, but me going on stage and acting like I am dark and like have this like sordid past would be just as dishonest as if you went on stage and acted like me because we don't have the same life. I I think like Jim Gaffigan cares as much about food as he claims to care about. And that is what (laughs) he's passionate about. Like, I don't think that makes him hacky because he talks about Hot Pockets. I think he's doing what he's talking about, what he knows and what is funny to him. And everybody else. And everybody else, yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I do wonder, though, like, when you go through the divorce, you, you do the material, mm-hmm. does that help your healing process? I mean, obviously, it's not going to fix everything, but... It helped help me, uh, with, at the risk of sounding self-important, it helped me to feel like I was helping other people. Because mm-hmm. during that time, the feedback that I got most uh, from people after shows or, you know, sending me messages or whatever was that, like they really appreciated the way that I was going about talking about something that was really upsetting um, because I very intentionally did not go up there speaking ill of my ex or or anything like that. It was just like, Hey, I'm really sad. I'm going to explain why and like talk about how I feel about stuff. And also 
how surreal a lot of this year has felt and I hope it resonates with you. And that was the feedback that I got overwhelmingly was people being like, Hey, I really appreciate you talking about that in the way that you did, because like I'm going through this or I went through that and like hearing you talk about it that way makes me feel okay. And that, that was something that I thought about consciously last year where I like, (laughs) it was a weird thing where I was like immediately talking about it on stage. And meanwhile, I, there were a lot of people in my life who didn't know that that was happening. Like obviously yeah. my family and my like close friends did, but somehow it was easier to like tell a group of strangers about it than to tell friends about it. And I think I had gotten to a point where like I kept having the same conversation where people would like say, oh, you know, how's your wife doing or whatever, where I had to like have this conversation endlessly where uh, at some point last summer – I <laughs> I don't think there's any other way to say it other than like I, I like came out as divorced. I like yeah, posted yeah, yeah. this thing yeah. on Instagram where I was like, hey, this is what happened. And part of that was because I didn't want to keep having that endless conversation in a in a loop forever. But also because like I, I genuinely think it was helpful to people because I think that I'm someone who is perceived to be someone who like has his shit together. And despite being in this like weird world of comedy, I think people look at me as someone who's like pretty buttoned up and pretty like happy and normal and this and that. And I think that there was something to be said for uh, being honest about the fact that like, yeah, you know, I, I present myself a certain way. And like most of the time it's somewhat representative of where I'm at, but like, don't believe everything you see on social media because like I, from experience was someone who all of that year where I was, where my life was falling apart was like, posting flyers for shows and me going to baseball games and smiling with friends. And like, those were the brief moments in between the shitstorm that my life had become, you know? Yeah. And, and I would think that you somewhat have to present that image just mm-hmm. to sell the product that is you. Sure. And it's like, yeah. okay, well, I'm not going to draw people to my shows if I post about, you know, me being sad. Mm-hmm. It's like, how many people would come and go, you know, unless it's like, you know, Stephen Wright, the divorce divorce meetup yeah, group. It's like, yeah, it's like, like, okay, well, if you know a comedian is dour in his personality, it's like, okay, maybe you like him, but it's like, right, if you're a happy go lucky guy and like mm-hmm. now you're down in your luck, like I almost think that, okay, like it's you're gonna go see Krusty the Clown on his bad days, you know, right? That's, that's well, rough. and that was kind of the challenge for me, and something that I feel like I pulled off was that even in talking about something really dark. I think I still kept like the essence of who I am on stage and what makes people like me, which is to say that I think generally speaking, when people see me on stage, I'm like a pretty like affable guy. And and the feeling that people get is like, oh, that's like, you know, like a nice, normal, funny person and like makes me feel good as I'm laughing. And and if anything, I think that that actually was like a positive contributor in the sense that like it was kind of. And in the way that like anything that's an opposite is funny, you know what I mean? Like that's what you see on TV all the time is like something that's unexpected where, you know, someone's story doesn't match how you perceive them to be. When I was talking about all that stuff, I think it was like kind of surprising to people because I do seem like someone who has it together. And then it was like, oh, shit, like this person who I had made all these assumptions about is actually like going through some real shit, but still talking about it in like a a, a likable way. Well, and two, like going through a divorce has to be extremely relatable. I mean, I, I, I got to be honest with you, being sad is a hell of a lot more relatable than being happy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a lot of shows I'll start off my set with a sad, I mean, it's like a, you know, mm-hmm. a dark joke, but it's like, you know, yeah. Okay. Well, 
laugh at me a little bit. Like, yeah. like we're all in this, in this together. And, and it's so, I think it's so much easier to write about being sad than it is yeah. to write about being happy. Cause it, mm-hmm. it seems like you're just bragging that you're having a good yes. string of luck. Yes, totally. I, I totally agree. I mean, there, I even had like a line at that time that was something about like, you know, it's kind of meta, but saying like one of the hardest parts of this has been kind of transitioning my material. Like I'm someone who talks about my life on stage and now I have to shift from being a relatable married comedian to a statistically more relatable divorced comedian. (laughs) (laughs) It's almost like it was bound to happen. It's like, okay, well, probably. Yeah. yeah. I guess I was, I was due for a, due for a setback. (laughs) Well, I ask everybody this question, but do you remember the worst show you've ever done? Yeah. I mean, I think if you ask any comic that there's like a million things that come to mind. Um, but I'll tell you about a more recent one because <laughs> like, I don't know, were you doing a lot of zoom shows or, or like virtual stuff in the past? Yeah, I did now? a ton of zoom mics and then I ran a zoom show for, I think we had, I think I had 15 of them and then okay. I, you know, I was on a bunch of them too. Yeah. Zoom, honestly, zoom was not that bad. Like zoom. No, I liked it. I didn't, I, I, yeah. And I've still, I still do them occasionally and, and they're fine, but I did a show. It's actually funny because just a week ago, um, as we're recording this, I performed at this actual college in real life in Philadelphia. But earlier this year, my college agent emailed me and he was like, hey, uh, we have this offer for you from this college in, in Philadelphia. Uh, it's a it's a virtual show. Are you interested? Um, and it was good money. And I was like, yeah, of course. And I assumed it would be a Zoom show, but it was not because uh, in an effort to, I guess, you know, set themselves apart in this virtual landscape, the secondary agency who had booked it had created their own virtual world. So I basically like performed in The Sims as a cartoon. Yeah. So like the week before the show, I do a sound check uh, or do like a, you know, pre-show advance shit with this agency. And what that entailed was me downloading this program, going into like, in the same way, I don't know if you have an iPhone, like when you create your like Memoji thing, like it was basically like that where I, I have to like, pick out my, you know, my features and my facial hair and and pick out like an outfit for myself in like this virtual dressing room. And then I get dropped into the center of this virtual campus and the little cartoon people from the agency like walk me through this campus into the auditorium where this virtual show is taking place and like walk me backstage and do a sound check. And so the whole thing was very bizarre. And then the the night of the actual show, the way they had it set up was that I could not see or hear anyone, right? So there were like 17 cartoon students there. I could not see their real faces. I could only see their little cartoon versions of themselves and they were all muted. So I basically did 45 minutes of stand-up to dead silence. Oh like I was God. just reciting jokes with no feedback whatsoever. That's like my worst nightmare. Um, it's horrible. Yeah, and the only the only feedback that I was getting was from whatever they were doing with their little emoji people, but they only had like three options, which were to like rub their bellies, which I guess meant that they were laughing to wave at me or to sprint around. So I'm like on this virtual stage, right. And, and I'm looking out at these cartoon students and they're just like doing wind sprints in a circle around this auditorium. (laughs) And what made it even more ridiculous was that the way they set it up was I walk onto the stage And I wish people could see this. Obviously, this is an audio medium. But basically, I was standing as a little cartoon version of myself next to a projected image of my real face. 
So it would be like if a little cartoon were in the corner of the screen and then what you were seeing was like me talking to you through Zoom right now on like a movie screen behind my cartoon, right? It was incredibly strange. So I'm doing I'm doing stand up to dead silence. I have no idea if I'm doing well. I don't even know if like anyone can hear me. Like I I, I think I asked multiple times like you know, someone chat me if you can't hear me because I have no way of knowing yeah. if any of this is going through. But the program was also very like glitchy. So about half an hour into the set, it crashes on my computer. So I'm sitting in my room and now all of a sudden I'm just looking at my desktop being like, what the fuck just happened? And I'm like panicking because I'm getting paid a, a stupid amount of money for a really bad show. And I'm like, oh my God, are they like not going to pay me if I can't get back into the program? Like what the hell is going to happen? So I frantically, and, and as I later found out from the vantage point of the cartoon students, I just disappeared off stage. Like, I don't know if like the mic just fell to the ground, like Thanos <laughs> made me disappear or something like that, but I just vanished. So all of a sudden they're just looking at a blank stage. Uh, obviously I have no way of communicating with anybody what the hell's going on. And so <laughs> I finally get the program booted up on my computer again. But when I log into it, it just drops me back into the center of campus. So now I'm this little cartoon, like alone in this campus, trying to remember where this auditorium is. So I finally find it. I, I walk in and then I like run up to the stage. But again, from the vantage point of this, the cartoon students who are there, they just see me as a cartoon, like running past them to try to get back oh onto the stage. And by the time I get there and try to walk on the stage, it had taken so long that I inadvertently interrupted a cartoon guitarist who had started his set <laughs> and then I got like forcibly removed from the program and I ended up coming back on finishing the last 15 minutes again to dead silence and then afterwards uh part of the contract involved me doing a virtual meet and greet where people were supposed to like take selfies with my cartoon and so I had to walk to this other room on the virtual campus uh for a meet and greet and no one showed up <laughs> that's awful <laughs> are you able and that to is i'm not exaggerating that is the best that is the best paycheck that i got during the pandemic was that <laughs> are you able to get a video of that no i wish i could i do have uh and again i wouldn't do anything for your listeners but i do have an image of me as the as the cartoon that i took like when i first designed it so um i do have that if you want to I, I can uh, text it to you if you want to like post it when absolutely comes out yeah um, but it was, crazy. it was a sheer absurdity and it was very satisfying because this past weekend I did that show in real life and I got to retell that story to actual students at that school and people were very amused by it. So why, okay. So this, the first show was what you say a year ago or it was in March, March, um, okay, it was okay, March okay. of this year. And okay, then okay. they like booked me in person. Wow. That's yeah. It's so crazy. they must've liked you enough. To bring you back. Apparently. Yeah. I don't know. I think probably they felt bad that I, they had subjected me to that. That's, you know, that's, that's a pretty good answer. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, I didn't do anything like that. It was just like, you know, just regular Zoom stuff. Yeah, yeah. And Zoom was fine. And that's very much what I expected. And if they had just done that and not, you know, overthought it, it probably would have been fine. It would have been me doing a Zoom show for, you know, the whatever, 15, 20 students who wanted to be there. And it would have been like any other Zoom show. But instead, uh, and, and I, I appreciate anybody trying to, like, do something different in the virtual landscape because people were very sick of Zoom. But yeah, that like to do comedy in that way to no one. Uh, I mean, I imagine even if you're a guitar player, it's probably a little disconcerting to not hear anything, but you can still like sit in a room and play a song and not feel like an idiot. Like if you're just telling jokes to no one, you feel crazy. Yeah. A lot of people were down on Zoom and I understand it, but it's like for me, 
I kept writing throughout the entire pandemic. And yeah, same. I mean, it just so when I got on stage, I felt like, and this might not be the case, mm-hmm. uh, but I definitely felt like I had improved while people hadn't. So I completely like, agree. So like, and, I got and on stage, also, yeah, yeah. It, it like kept the kept my existing jokes in my head because yeah. I think. If you had I not done that, now getting back to doing shows in person or especially doing like longer sets, I don't think I would even remember like the rhythm of my jokes anymore. And it also like kept me sane to feel like I was still kind of doing my job. Not to mention the fact that frankly, like people were pretty generous, especially like early on in the pandemic. Like I would do shows where they would just like put everybody's Venmo in the chat. And like, I think people recognized that it was a difficult time for performers and like, there were times where people would, you know, send me like a hundred bucks or something. And I was like, oh shit, that's like more than I would have made if I was doing a show in person. Yeah. And I love the commute time. I mean, like, like, dude, it was incredible. There was a day last year where I did, uh, I was pretty proactive about like seeking out zoom stuff. Cause I, I figured out like a, I, I feel like I got pretty good at it, especially like doing a clean set that I could, you know, do for a company happy hour or whatever. Like, I don't, I don't feel like a sellout for doing that. I don't fucking care. But there was a day last, (laughs) last December where I did six shows in one day, all in this chair, like spaced out throughout the day, all of which were between like 30 and 45 minutes. Like I was exhausted. Just my, my voice was tired at the end of the day, but like in what other world could you do six different gigs of that length in the same calendar day? Like it's not possible. No, I remember the first Zoom show I did. Somebody asked me to do it, and I'm like, "Yeah, okay, I'll do it." And and at the beginning, I was hesitant to do anything. Mm-hmm. I'm like, "No, it's only going to last two or three weeks." Of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, comedian in Rochester said, "Hey, do you want to do the show?" I'm like, "Sure." And then I, I walked to my table. I did my what six minute set, seven minute set, mm-hmm. and then I walked back to my chair, started watching a game or a movie, whatever it was, mm-hmm. and I got like you know, like. $27 Venmo. And I'm like, oh, I mean, it's less than what I would have made regularly, but it was legitimately eight minutes of work mm-hmm. and I walked six steps. Yeah. So I'm like, I, you can't really beat that. No. Yeah, I agree. Like, I obviously, it's nothing is the same as performing in person. Um, but if Zoom shows continue happening, uh, I'm, I'm more than happy to keep doing them because to your point, it's like I can do a Zoom show and then still go do a regular show. Yeah. Like, it's not it's not that much effort, really. No. Now you're going to Chicago. Are you headlining Zanies in December? Yes. Yes. So I, which I'm very excited about because that's like, even though I didn't come up as a, as a comic in Chicago, like that is a, a great club and something that I've always wanted to do. So yes, Friday and Saturday, December 3rd and 4th, I'm headlining four shows. So it's like early and late show both nights. Uh, and this is not locked in yet, but uh, I am planning to record my second album that weekend. Um, I had one that came out in 2017. Obviously, it's kind of a weird mixture of like divorce material and then COVID material. So I kind of need to figure out what that set list would be. But like, it's one of those things where, uh, and I don't know if you ever do this, but sometimes I like intentionally back myself into a corner because I know that I'll be ready for it if I just lock something in. So, I mean, we're you and I are recording this in in early to mid October. So for me, like I, since I know that I have the material and it's just a matter of like organizing it. I feel like a month and a half is reasonable to to be ready for that. And then I'm also doing a show in New York at Stand Up New York on that Tuesday, November 30th, that will be like a tune up for what hopefully will be an album recording. So for anybody who's local who wants to uh, check me out in New York City, that would definitely be the one to go to. I don't think it's even on the website yet because this is like recently has recently happened. But if you are listening to this uh, at a later date, um, that's uh, yeah Tuesday 
the 30th of November. What does it mean for you to get that headlining spot at Zany's? It means a lot. I mean, I think it's like, um, it's tough because I feel like I've, I've been able to do the job of a headliner for a while, but I'm not a headliner in the sense that like, I don't have a big following. So, um, you know, it's frustrating sometimes when there are people who are headlining based on their following and not based on their comedic talent, uh, not to be like salty about anything, but like, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, of course. People who, you know, have some podcasts that's huge and then they're like headlining everywhere. And it's like, man, I've, this person is not good at comedy. So <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really, it's, it's satisfying to do. And, and it's just, it's a, I don't know if you've ever been out there, but like, it's a, it's a great room. It's a really, it's like a nice tight, like maybe hundred seat room. And I also have family out there still. Like my mom's family is all in uh, Wisconsin and Illinois. So I'm hopefully going to be able to get some people out to that. And it is cool doing shows in, in Chicago because it's this weird mix of like people who know me from my current work, but then people who are like family and friends that I grew up with. And yeah, I'm, I'm excited about it. And you couldn't, ske- you couldn't have scheduled this during the baseball season. You know, can you go to a Bulls game? <laughs> you know, uh, so the Bulls are actually it's it's very bad timing because the weekend that I'm going to be doing this, the Bulls play the Knicks and Nets in New York. Oh, jeez. Um, but I actually did yesterday buy tickets for a Bulls Knicks game in March, so I have uh, tickets for five months from now. But the Bears play that Sunday. I have never been to Soldier Field, so I'm thinking of going to a Bears game and just like having the experience of freezing my ass off and and getting to say that I went to Soldier Field, especially because they're going to be moving, um, I think, within the next few years out to the out to the burbs. But I also I was in Chicago a few weeks ago and I did get to go to a Cubs game against my better judgment. Um, one of the benefits of them tanking this year was that I was able to get seats behind home plate for like sixteen dollars a piece in September, which is oh crazy. that's not bad for a Cubs Cardinals game at Wrigley the last weekend at home. Are you a big Bears fan? I would say I go, at this point in my life, I go like Cubs, Bulls, Bears is the hierarchy. Um, okay. And I don't follow hockey, which is unfortunate because the Blackhawks have been <laughs> probably the best the team of them, 15 of them all. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, I watch, I watch every single Bears game, but it's also like it's easier to do that when it's once a week. It's, so, more, it's more ridiculous that I try to watch every Cubs game. <laughs> I covered one NFL game. It was mm-hmm. Steelers and the Bears. It's Jerome Bettis' last um, ah, I think it was his bus. last home game or yeah. like it was the, the last time he rushed for a hundred yards Yeah, and Robbie gold, the kicker was like a local guy for mm-hmm. where I was covering. Uh, it was lock Haven. He played at mill hall at, yeah. at that high school and then uh, went to Penn state. I've actually performed at lock Haven university. Believe yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I covered a lot of games there. Yeah. Uh, saw three eleven there. That's the first time I ever saw hmm. or knew of lock Haven. Uh, yeah, but so I'm in the I'm in the locker room, the Bears locker room. I'm trying to do a story on Robbie Gold, and it was the year they went to the Super Bowl, mm-hmm. 2007, I think, and yeah. or six oh seven six, and, yeah. And uh, the defense was so good, and the offense was mm-hmm. so bad. Yeah, it's so, Rex Grossman. It's terrible. There, yeah, there were a lot of times where like they would win like you know ten to nine, and it would mm-hmm. be Gold's last second kick or whatever. So I remember asking Rex Grossman. I said. I said, uh, hey, man, do you have a second to you know talk? He said, no, nah, man, I'm done. And I'm like, yeah, oh, okay, okay, I got it. Best guy in the locker room, by far, Brian Urlacher. Just huh. absolute awesome. It might be the best pro athlete I've ever interviewed. He, That's awesome. You know, I'm 23. I, this is the first time. It's obvious it's my first time in an NFL locker room. And everybody swarmed. Just him. staring like, up at how oh. large all of these humans are. I remember I was talking to Robbie Gold, and I think his name was Tank Johnson. I yeah, yeah, yeah. That's who it was. Yeah, <laughs> he goes, uh, I'm talking to this like, what, six foot white skinny kicker. Mm-hmm. And I hear this 
big booming bassy voice going, excuse me, naked guy coming through. <laughs> I was like, fuck, I'm moving. <laughs> like, yeah. like, I'm not he would have moved through. you had you not. Yeah, moved absolutely. But I, yeah. I went up to Erlocker and I said, hey, do you have a couple of minutes to talk about like uh, I'm doing a story on, on Robbie Gold and defense? And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then everybody swarmed him. It was like Jay Mariotti, everybody. Mm-hmm. And I was pushed out. He saw me. And afterward, he goes, hey, man, I got a couple minutes. He talked to me. That's until really the, cool. He talked to me until the PR director ripped him away. That's awesome. I will never listen to anybody talk badly about Erlocker. He was a great guy. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So, uh, no, I, I admire... I admire your love for Chicago sports. I think that's, that's, uh, I mean, if you want to sink your teeth into them and take all the arrows, go for it. But, <laughs> I mean, Hey, at least you have some championships. Like, I mean, you watch a lot. I'm a Mets I fan. Have, I've yes, got, I, have some I haven't seen them win one championship. In yeah. My I mean, I got, uh, now of course I, I immediately changed my, my, uh, expectations once they won, but like, I, I was for sure one of those people who was like, please just one world series before I die. I just, I yeah. just want to see the Cubs win a world series. And that meant more to me than anything else. Like I got to, I was, I, I got to go to the world series. I was at game five. Um, and it, I, I consider it like wow. the, the, probably the best night of my life, honestly. That's amazing. I, yeah. oof, I mean, I watched it. It was a great game. Yeah, I mean that yeah. whole series was fantastic. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I I'm Even fully there. convinced the game game seven took like five years off my life. Yeah, I mean, I mean Jason Hayward, from my opinion, he did like nothing that year. You know, nope. I mean he's, he's got a great arm, but yeah. he's given credit. I mean, just that one speech. I mean, I mean it's 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 a huge moment. I really I I think that finally the Cubs got got dealt a break with that rain delay. I really think that they lose that game if, if they don't have that chance to regroup because all the momentum was for Cleveland and the poor Indians. I mean, they hadn't yeah. once uh, granted Cubs, you know, had a longer streak, but 1948, I mean, yeah. they they got swept in 54 lost in 95 and 97. And yeah. Oh God. Well, maybe now they'll, uh, now that their name has changed, they can finally win again. Well, the Indians maybe will it was never karma. win again. Yeah. That, that yeah. the guardians might, yeah, uh, I don't think the spiders did well either. So, no, I don't. Rough, think so. but dude, I'll let you go. I'll let you flee the country. I know you want to do that. But uh, <laughs> thank it. you so much for everything. Do you do you want to plug anything? I mean, social media, your shows again. Um, sure. Yeah, it's just uh, Adam Mamawala across platforms. So at Adam Mamawala on Twitter and and Instagram. Uh, my website's adammamawala.com. If you go to the tour tab on my site, that's uh, that's where I will be. I've been doing a better job of actually keeping that updated. And then I do have an existing album. Uh, it's called One of the Good Ones, and that is available wherever you get albums. You can get it on Spotify. If you want to buy it, I suggest doing it through Bandcamp because they give uh, artists more money than anywhere else. Um, and I think that's all I got. Awesome, dude. Well, again, I appreciate all your time and best of luck in the DR. Oh, thanks, man. I, uh, the last time I was there, I got to meet a Cubs player. <laughs> all right. You know what? I take that back. <laughs> I hope it's a terrible trip. Now, who'd you oh, meet? Who'd nice. you meet? Uh, a very, very obscure player who even you, a big baseball fan, will not have heard of. Uh, his name is Randy Rosario. He's a lefty reliever for the Cubs. And I was, I mean, in the DR, like everything revolves around baseball. So yeah. I got talking to a guy uh, who worked there. And I think I was maybe like wearing a Cubs tank top or something like that. And he's like, oh, you like the Cubs? I was like, yeah. He's like, you know, Randy Rosario? I was like, yeah. He's like, he's my cousin. Do you want to meet him? I was like, sure. And so I like went off the resort, which like there was a part of me that was like, is someone going to like take my kidney? Like I, I it, it seemed ill-advised at the time, but it ended up being uh, being very legit. And along those lines, final thing I'll plug, uh, if you are a baseball fan, I have a podcast called Away Games that I do with Kevin McCaffrey, who is another uh, very funny comic, uh, also from Chicago, who lives in New York. And uh, 
a basketball podcast called Horse, which you can find on social media at Horse Hoops or Horse underscore Hoops on Twitter because some asshole took Horse Hoops at some point. <laughs> You're not going to pay him off for it? No, no, no. We're like much like Chipotle tweets. We're not. We're not going that hard for at Chipotle. <laughs> well, dude, best of luck with everything, and I'm sure Zanias will be great in the album. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. So I appreciate everything, and I'll talk to you in a bit. Of course. Mm-hmm.